Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Today, Drs. Gary Wirtz and Blake Williamson are joined by ophthalmology's favorite comedian, Dr. Glockenflecken. What started as a creative outlet has led Dr. G to become the comedic voice of medicine on Twitter. More of his story coming up on Off the Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Support for Ophthalmology Off the Grid comes from Diametrix, supplying surgeons with innovative products like the X1 Iris Speculum. Its unique ability to simultaneously capture both iris and capsule makes this device a game changer, providing superior stabilization of the pupil, capsule, and anterior chamber. Visit diamatrix.com, that's D-I-A-M-A-T-R-I-X.com, to learn more or request a sample. I'm Dr. Gary Wirtz, and I'm so excited to be back uh, doing a regular edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, um, again with, with my partner in crime, Dr. Blake Williamson. We're diving back into the real stories of ophthalmologists who are uh, impacting our profession, who have interesting stories to share, and tonight I'm super excited um, that we have a very special guest. So Blake, why don't you take it away? The one and only Dr. G. Anybody who is on Twitter and likes to follow different uh, medical accounts, especially ophthalmology accounts, knows Dr. G. Usually we're, we're, we're laughing along with his tweets and uh, you know, we're retweeting um, everything that he does. Uh, but he had some real life stuff happen, uh, I guess just about eight weeks ago, a couple months ago. Um, and so we thought that uh, it'd be great to have him on uh, to talk about those experiences, to talk about you know, how he's doing now and uh, what's going on in, in the immediate future with COVID and everything else. So Dr. G, thanks so much for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. And I, I just want to say, I'm feeling really self-conscious about my hair right now. I mean, I know a lot of people are listening, can't see our haircuts, but I, mine just pales in comparison to, to you two. I'm impressed. Well, yeah. uh, I get Dr. cut every three weeks on, on, on a schedule. Thank you for noticing. I, I do work hard at this. Yeah. yeah. Dr. G, the, the list is long and distinguished <laughs> of folks who've said that. So don't feel bad. You're in okay. Good All right. Good. good. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. So, it's so funny. The first time I think I saw you on Twitter, uh, because I have, you know, a, a probably an overactive Twitter account for my relative interests um, in ophthalmology. But I was like, who is this guy? What, is, <laughs> what in the world? But it was like, I was, see, I was just laughing out loud. I couldn't believe just how I was, a, you were able to connect um, your experiences in ophthalmology with sort of the way ophthalmologists are perceived by the rest of medicine, which is hilarious. There's, there's kind of an open lane, but I'm just curious, like when did you decide that you were going to take sort of this comedic approach to your professional development in ophthalmology? <laughs> like that is a lane that we talked about earlier. It's kind of open. When did yeah. you decide that was going to be the thing you wanted to sort of brand yourself? 
Well, I, I've been doing I've been doing comedy on and off since high school. Yeah, I started uh, doing open mics in Houston growing up um, uh, with a friend of mine, and it continued through uh, college and into med school, actually. Uh, so I, I never considered comedy as a career choice. Um, I'm a little bit too risk averse for that. So, you know, I, I, I gravitated more toward the sciences, but uh, um, I still had that itch that I needed to scratch. You know, I still had that comedy background that, you know, I, I love to make people laugh. I love telling jokes. And, uh, and so joining Twitter, ended up being a way for me to have that creative outlet. And it actually started in, I think my second year of residency at, at Arvo. I went to Arvo to give this, I don't even remember what my poster was about. It was yeah. just- Well, let me, let me stop you there. Uh, Arvo is a real laugh a minute if you've been. I mean, everyone oh, oh. can go, but- <laughs> Yeah, and that, exactly. It's, it's just, there's so much material there, right? I mean, it's, it's so, it was, by far, I mean, no disrespect for the people that put on Arvo. I mean, it's it's a very well-run meeting, but my God, it was boring. Like I, I it was like my first time to Arvo. I was like, well, I mean, I know I'm never coming back to this meeting. So at that point, I was like, I got, I'm here for like three days. I, I can't I just go to these, you know, these sessions, these talks, and just you know, not talk to anybody. And so I got on Twitter. Actually, a friend of mine, Steve Christensen, which I'm sure you guys uh, know. Um, you know, he, he was on Twitter and she was like, yeah, you should join. So I got on it, started telling very specific jokes about CRISPR and, uh, basically some of the very entertaining topics that go on at, at Arvo to an audience of about five people. Uh, and, um, and then it just kind of slowly, very slowly built up from there. Uh, but it, it did, it, it gave me that creative outlet. It was like, oh, people are actually seeing and reading my tweets and my jokes and some people find them funny. And, and so it, it, would, it got, gave me that little, I got that little dopamine rush right at the beginning and it just kind of carried on. That must've been a tremendous opportunity whenever you were really young uh, in high school to be able to get up in front of an audience uh, and do a set. I mean, like just to prepare you for like, interviews in med school and talking to patients, you know, 40 mm -hmm. patients a day that you don't know, um, that's got to help tremendously in terms of social awareness and, and being able to connect with, with people or an audience, in this case, patients. Oh, it does, for sure. I mean, it's, it was terrifying, you know, starting out. Um, first time I went on stage, you know, I wrote uh, like five minutes of jokes and my first joke, it was, it was great. I had this huge laugh. And then the rest of that set just absolutely bombed. It was awful. And, uh, and so, and then you just slowly get better at it from there. But it's, it's such a great experience to, to, to put yourself out there. And just like you said, I, it certainly has helped me out in a lot of different things, just public speaking in general. Uh, and seeing patients is like a, a form of that, right? You're, you're having to talk and, and reach people where they're at and, uh, connect with them. So I, absolutely. Yeah. I imagine that stand up. I'm imagining like what you said, this is sort of maybe like playing golf, that one great shot. Uh, you know, you remember that great shot and all the bad ones you sort of forget you, you're chasing after that one thing. Is that, I mean, I don't know if you play golf or not. Mm -hmm. I really don't because I, I only remember the bad shots. I'm the opposite. 
Yeah. But I assume it's sort of like that. Well, it's kind of like that in, in that it's the exact opposite. I remember most of my failures a lot better than I remember my successes. But uh, <laughs> with the exception of a few, I did a few comedy competitions over the years and, and did fairly well. I remember those. Those were always fun. But I don't know. It's whenever things don't go well on stage, it's really not fun. It's like I might rather like break the posterior capsule than like go on stage and bomb. Uh, they're very synonymous in a lot of ways. One of my sayings about complications of cataract surgery is there is no limit to how much the eye can punish you. Oh yeah. It keeps you humble, doesn't it? And it sounds like there's no limit to how humiliated you can be on stage. Is that similar? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's terrifying whenever it's happening, just like, uh, you know, bad things in the OR. And you're, and you're trying, you're using your mind, you're trying to figure a way out and everything you do keeps making it worse. Your heart's beating like, you know, 200 times a minute. Oh yeah. You can't leave. You're sweating. You're the one there. The difference is you got hot lights on you. You don't, you're not sitting in a 60 degree OR. I don't know like, what you guys are talking about. I, I never have these issues. I'm not sure what the hell we're talking about. This doesn't happen again. Yeah, hey, you're Dr. famous for that. Yeah, yeah. I have, a, I have a question, man. So a lot of us have been watching Netflix um, while we're in quarantine. And uh, there are some crazy uh, good Netflix uh, sort of uh, stand-up documentaries recently, like the one with uh, Dave Chappelle and the one with like Aziz. Both of those guys had some controversial things happen recently. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of moved to this whole cerebral uh, sort of like take on it. I don't know if you've seen both of those, but it's just so different mm -hmm. than the normal stand-up stuff. So I'm just wondering if there's some good stuff on, uh, on Netflix or any stand-up comics that, you know, you'd recommend uh, uh, us take a look at on, on, on these streaming services. Yeah, I, honestly, I haven't seen a lot, a lot lately. Um, I'm a big fan of Jim Gaffigan. I, I love Jim Gaffigan, everything he does. How about Sebastian? Have you, have you seen Sebastian I Maniscalco? I haven't, no. Oh, I, I love, I've recently got, uh, you know, um, someone told me about Sebastian Maniscalco. The <laughs> dude is hilarious. He's an Italian guy and very um, kind of classic, you know, physical comedy, very, you know, he's a very physical comedian and just the stories he tells crack me up. So that, that's something that I, I would to check it out. anybody <laughs> check out. Um, so I'm, I'm, I want to know, uh, you know, your life has not been all laughs, you know, it's, it's interesting. Nobody's life is, is all smiles and, and comedy. You know, you've had some things health wise, even before recently, which we'll, we'll get into that. But, um, you know, I think it's important that we frame this conversation that you're a cancer survivor. Yeah, um, you know, right. you are someone who has been through a lot in your life. How have you dealt with those things? Has comedy been your therapy through this whole, through these ordeals? Is it a way yeah. that you kind of can deal with this stuff? Because it's heavy stuff you've had to deal with. It's absolutely the way I deal with uh, some of this stuff. So in um, yeah, uh, my third year of med school, um, I diagnosed myself basically with testicular cancer. So, you know, I woke up and, you know, felt a lump and, I was like, you know, I, I, I'm only a third year med student, but I know my testicle is not trying to grow another testicle. And so, um, yeah. and that was it. And so, you know, I, I got treatment and, and at that point in my, 
in my life, I'd kind of gotten away from comedy. I, I really wasn't doing a whole, obviously busy. Right. Um, right. And, uh, but that really lit that fire again for me because th that's how I deal with things. You know, I, I use humor as a coping mechanism, like a lot of people do. Um, I just happen to really enjoy doing it in a very public way. And so uh, as soon, basically as soon as that I was hit with that diagnosis, I started writing jokes again, started doing open mics, some comedy competitions, things like that. Um, nothing professionally, you know, because I just didn't have time to, to try to, to do that. But it, it did help me to get up on stage and talk about those issues and, and make light of it. Um, it was really helpful for me to, to process and move forward. Yeah. And I still do it. <laughs> I found that the times when I'm put on the spot and I'm most stressed, I, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, you know, I, it's, it's sad, but I feel like as I've gotten older and I've become more serious and I just feel like that part of me has sort of gone. But I mean, I remember times in medical school, um, I, I probably shouldn't even tell the story, but I'm going to anyways. And you can, you can, you, know, <laughs> hear it. you bring, you bring out the, uh, you bring out the <laughs> funny in people. So I'm a third year medical student and I'm terrified. Uh, it's my first rotation. It's OBGYN, of course, and it's gynonc, which we all know gynonc is one of the more challenging rotations, yeah. especially to be thrown into when you don't even know how to do an H&P. And so we're doing rounds. I went to Louisville and we had four hospitals. So we're doing rounds at four different hospitals every morning. And I had this uh, British OBGYN named Dr. Helm, and he loved to pimp us on rounds. And so the, the, the topic of the day were, was rectovaginal fistulas. Hmm. And, and I'm, you know, it's a great topic for the morning. You know, it's something mm -hmm. you want to really uh, think about and discuss. And uh, so we're, we're going around, you know, there's, there's myself and another medical student. There's a couple of uh, residents of various levels and him. And of all the people, he stops and he says, um, student Dr. Wirtz, um, have you ever seen a, a rectovaginal fistula? I said, you know what, Dr. Helm, I'm going to be real honest. I've hardly ever even seen a vagina. And so <laughs> at that point, it was like, it broke the tension, you know, it was, well, that's great. It, got, it got a pretty good laugh at the time. And, uh, you know, honestly, it was like self-deprecating and yeah. pretty honest to be, you know, really truthful. And uh, I got, you know, the rest of the rotation was actually a lot more fun from that moment on. Yeah. So it's those little things you remember. Um, Absolutely. It kind of keep you coming back to the well, but uh, self-deprecating. I mean, that kind of humor, that's, it just gets everybody on your side. You know, it's, it's so, so important, especially in medicine to be able to laugh at yourself because everybody, I mean, we have a very serious profession, right? It's extremely serious. All, not just ophthalmology, just the whole thing. And so to be able to to kind of put that aside that and, and just be able to let your, let your guard down and laugh at yourself is, it seems like it should be an easy thing to do, but it's really, it's not. Well, our profession is filled with people who have tried to climb and claw to the top. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is ego driven. And I mean, I'm, I'm prone to that as well. I mean, there are times when I feel like I need to have more accolades or whatever than, I mean, everyone feels that way. So I think it can be refreshing when someone mm -hmm. who is generally thought to be, you know, someone who's climbing to the top to say, no, I'm not really that smart. I'm not really that experienced, you know, yeah. to 
you know, I really haven't seen that many vaginas. That's if, right. That's and, and yeah. that was very true. Um, so speaking of vaginas and rectovaginal fistulas and different specialties, uh, I'm curious how you landed on ophthalmology because Gary and I we always talk about how ophthalmology has the best collection of like funny ass people and just hilarious like just total characters. And I bet you a lot of specialties think they do too, but I think ophthalmology has the widest array of personalities. <laughs> Can you talk about how you ultimately, out of all those specialties and OB gun and everything else, how you decided on what you do now? Yeah, I, I started, uh, actually, I decided pretty late or right at the beginning of my fourth year that I decided. So it was really late um, compared to some of my peers. Uh, but I had just done vascular surgery uh, as my, like, part of my core general surgery rotation. And I had kind of an interest in ophthalmology. And so I set up an elective right after that. And so I went from, I went from standing in the OR wearing a lead vest for like five hours to, to sitting, to being offered a stool during a 10 to 15 minute cataract surgery. And I was like, this, this is possible. This is, this is a thing that happens. And it was just like a breath of fresh air because I wasn't a big fan of, of those, of the longer cases. And, and so that just, that set me up right there. I was like, you know, you could have told me anything and I would have been a fan of, of ophthalmology. Um, and now actually I, and, and, and I've talked about this a lot on Twitter, you know, trying to help people figure out, you know, it's, it's hard, right? Figuring out what you want to do. But I realized that like to decide to become an ophthalmologist, you know, there's three questions you have to be able to answer, right? So the first question is, do you like surgery? Because you all like being in the OR. The second question, do you like to sit down, right? Because that's a big part of what we do. You know, the average ophthalmologist spends over 800 hours adjusting the height of various chairs. All right. And the third question, obviously, is our eyeballs gross. And that's, that's, that's the last hurdle, because a lot of people think they just can't do eyeballs. And so if you can answer those three questions, you have to be an ophthalmologist. That's the only, it's the only career for you in medicine. Isn't that and crazy so, how many people think eyeballs are gross, but they're very quick to do a digital rectal exam or, you know, pelvic exam or, I mean, I mean, I'm I agree. Like, it's a weird thing, you know, like people have it with dentists too, um, you know, they can't do teeth or I don't know. People have their things, but uh, fortunately, I was able to tolerate eyeballs and landed in ophthalmology. I want to talk about the word glockenflecken. That is the that is mm, that is yeah. your proper name, Doctor Glockenflecken. <laughs> um, how did you land on glockenflecken? I need the origin story of this, and what were the runner-up names, if there were any? So uh, again, it was at Arvo, uh, and. <laughs> <laughs> All good was, things start at Arvo. All, all good things start at Arvo. And, uh, you know, I was just surrounded by all these people using all these big, fancy words. And I was just, maybe I was just feeling smart at the time. But I, I just, like, what is the most ridiculous, kind of meaningless, you know, to most people? What, what's the word that just is so ridiculous, so out there? And that's hard in ophthalmology because we're, our, our specialty is full of those words. And, it just kind of came to me. It was like glockenflecken. It's got to be glockenflecken. <laughs> like what a ridiculous, stupid word that is. And the, the alternatives were, um, the main one was Dr. Pseudophacodenesis. But hmm. I, I thought, you know, let's is not- Is that one still available? Is that- Yeah, is that I, I think it is. I think okay. it is. You should, okay. you should get that one, Gary. 
Okay, I'm thinking um, about that. Too many syllables, though. I mean, I can only tolerate people can only tolerate so many syllables, and so That's true. yeah, I just went with Glockenflecken, and it Glockenflecken stuck. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. It sounds <laughs> profane a little bit. It kind of sounds yeah. a little profane. But the, we, the the downside is people assume I'm a glaucoma specialist. I get messages all the time about glaucoma, emails about glaucoma. That's <laughs> I just. They peg me into a glaucoma. That's that's funny. You yeah. know, one thing I've noticed on Twitter is you seem to be able to translate ophthalmology to the rest of the world of medicine. It's like we are on this secret island. It's like Wakanda in a way where it's like no one can find it. No one knows where it is. It doesn't really exist. But yet you are somehow able to transverse from our little island to the mainland of other specialties and explain what we do and sort of punch down at ourselves for all the funny things that are, you know are associated with being ophthalmologists like going home at four o'clock and having a nice yeah. weekend and those sorts of things yeah. but i think you've even like gone to like er conferences and been guest speakers at other you know outside we had you at millennial eye a few years ago which is where we met actually and had a great time but you've actually gone and performed at other medical specialty conferences. Can you talk a little bit about that and where you, yeah. where you find enjoyment sort of translating ophthalmology to the rest of medicine? That, that kind of, that was the audience I kind of fell into. And so, you know, getting started on Twitter, there's really not a lot of ophthalmologists. There's, there's not a big ophthalmology community. The biggest communities are emergency medicine, you know, primary care, anesthesia they have nothing uh, yeah. else to do. <laughs> and so um it's that was the audience that was out there and and so and part of what i was doing at the time i was also writing for gomer blog I was writing like satire articles for gomer blog which is a, like a the medical onion website and so that actually really helped me to be able to branch outside of jokes about ophthalmology into other specialties. Cause I was writing these articles, trying to come up with ideas about other specialties. And eventually I went away from Gomer blog and just was starting doing my own thing, but that set me up to be able to, to reach that audience. And I very quickly realized that general ophthalmology education, number one is is horrible for people outside of ophthalmology or just in med school in general, right? How much did you learn about ophthalmology in med school that you didn't just like actively seek out yourself, right? It's like, it's abysmal, it's nothing. If they actually sat down and told people the real deal about ophthalmology, everybody go to ophthalmology, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, we like to think so, but, um, uh, but the other part of it is, is that other specialties need to know something about ophthalmology right? Emergency physicians need to know something. They, they're not taught, they're not taught, you know, about these things, but they need it. And so that was the niche I gravitated toward. And, uh, and that helped me kind of come at some educational topics that are pertinent to those specialties. And I've been able to develop this, a way of, of describing it in a humorous way, um, that uh, is on a, a non-ophthalmologist level. And so from there, I, I started getting you know, asked to do you know, talks and uh, be able to combine education and humor, which is really something that I'm, uh, I've really been focusing on the last couple of years. Yeah, it's like you established a beachhead where you were able to come across and to communicate things that 
I mean, I'm not sure how many times an ER conference has asked an ophthalmologist to come and lecture. I assume that if they do, no one's going to show up. That's the time you're going to go and get your coffee and pastry um, and yeah. soggy fruit. Um, you know, but this, I think, was uh, probably very well received. Um, so that's, there's, a, that's, there's a disconnect, I think, between the you know, ophthalmologists and, and what non-ophthalmologists know. And obviously, there's disconnect. But I, don't, I just don't think ophthalmologists, I don't think we, we really understand fully the extent of that gap, which is enormous. So I want to I want to talk about um, you know your recent health challenge, um, and that's probably putting it very mildly. Pretty mild. Uh, this is something that you know when I found out what happened to you, I was really shocked. I mean, that's a bad word for it, considering. But I would love for you to just, <laughs> you know, I mean, just in your own words, yeah. explain, you know, what happened. And leading up to that, how were you feeling? I mean, did this happen out of the clear blue sky? What, I'm just so, yeah. I cannot imagine what you went through. So <laughs> paint the picture for us. Uh, so it was, um, well, I'll start with Mother's Day because, uh, you know, we had a great Mother's Day. You know, we went to my in-law's house and we, uh, um, as a family, and we had like a water balloon fight and just, you know, got to play around outside. It was a great day. And to be honest, I don't remember a whole lot about that day. I remember I've seen pictures and, but a lot of that's a pretty, uh, I'm still kind of missing bits and pieces of it because the, that night about four o'clock in the morning is when I had a cardiac arrest. It uh, just completely out of the blue. I felt fine, you know, a little bit tired, but you know, I'm an ophthalmologist. I have a very busy schedule. So of course I'm going to be tired. Um, <laughs> So I uh, you know, went to bed and my wife, uh, fortunately, she's a light sleeper because she woke up uh, to hear me having agonal breaths. So kind of gasping um, and immediately just knew something was wrong, called 911 and she's not BLS certified. Uh, you know, she's not in medicine at all. And so they walked her through it. She said, I don't think he's breathing. She listened for a heartbeat, nothing. And so um, the 911 operator who was just phenomenal, we have since listened to the recording and it's, it's pretty harrowing to listen to it, but it was, um, it was good for us to do that. Uh, but walked her through the CPR, which she then proceeded to do for 10 minutes. 10 minutes of CPR. That's, that's, un, that's exhausting. I mean, that's think unbelievable. Of, can you think about how long it takes? Well, you probably could probably do two cataract surgeries in 10 minutes, Gary, but uh, um, you know, and can you imagine that? I, I, I can't honestly can't like I, you know, I was a pretty fit guy um, and you guys are pretty fit guys. I don't think, I mean, it, it just, it seems impossible to be able to keep that up, keep up effective CPR. I mean, I had 10 minutes where I wasn't getting oxygen, you know, uh, and, but she kept it going and, and she, she, it was just absolutely amazing. And this is on our bed too. So it's not like, you know, she couldn't get me on the floor. I have like 90 pounds on her. And so, um, and so not only that, not only that, but she was able to give like directions to our, to our garage door 
tell the code to the garage door, uh, the cardinal directions to which bedroom we were in. She told them we were in the northwest corner of the house. <laughs> it's like all of this while understandably panicked and and doing chest compressions. And so um, finally EMS arrived. Um, they busted in our back door, which is totally fine. Uh, and uh, since repaired it, that was a fun activity. And um, uh, took me downstairs. We were upstairs, took me downstairs, shocked me six times. They had shocked me six times and eventually got sinus rhythm back. So I was in, uh, I was in V-fib and took me to the hospital. And from my perspective, I went to bed Sunday night and I woke up in the ICU three days later. And in the, in the meantime, all this had happened. I was in the ICU, I got cooled. I didn't, I wasn't on ECMO or anything, but uh, they did they cool my body temperature down uh, for about 24 hours. Uh, and then brought me back and were, everyone was very nervous to see what my cognitive functioning would be. And fortunately, um, they were asking me questions. I was able to answer everything appropriately. And I got, I got, I mean, I want to say I got lucky, but it was, it was out of hospital arrest, you know, getting CPR starting within, within minutes was key. And I owe it all to my wife, obviously. All on Mother's Day, too. I mean, I, I don't know if it's yeah, too right. serious, but like, you better plan a hell of a mother. <laughs> <next year. laughs> you got to blow it out next year for her. <laughs> and, and every year after that. I, I pretty much, uh, you know, I've, my, my days of, of winning arguments is, I mean, they were already gone. They weren't, they weren't great. They were, they were few and far between, but now there's no chance. So, <laughs> and it's been a, it's been a process, you know, it's cause one thing people don't realize is, yeah, that's, that was a big, it was a trauma to me personally. Uh, I'm the one that almost died, but in a lot of ways it was harder for my family, people around me. How, I mean, how has she, I mean, if you're willing to talk about mm -hmm. this, clearly don't answer if, if not, but I mean, how was she dealing with this? Because like you said, she lived it you know, you almost had the benefit of the amnesia to not have to relive it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah. did you wake up with her putting a mirror over your mouth <laughs> to see if you're still breathing? I mean, what are, what's, what's the new she normal does. like? I mean, yeah, you know, we're, we're, I think we're pretty close to, you know, normal and just a day-to-day -day life is, is pretty normal. Um, that, that trauma is still there. You know, we've, we've had to go through, you know, we, I talked about the 911 call. Um, it was important for her that I listened to that with her. And at first I didn't want to do it. It's like, sure. I, I can't, I can't do it. I can't hear your voice. I can't hear the, the, how scared you were. I can't hear what it sounded like to give myself compressions, but she was the only one that lived that she was living in her words. She was living in that space by herself and right. she needed she needed somebody else to experience that. And which I, which when she told me that, I was like, that, that makes perfect sense. And so we listened to it and that was really helpful to, just so I uh, was able to understand, you know, to a certain extent what she had experienced. And, um, and we've, we've been getting, you know, it's, it's gonna take a while, but you know, we're just happy that everything's okay now. I imagine that um, 
you know, you've become, you know, quite the expert per, you know, compared to a year ago on cardiovascular health and how the heart works and everything like that. I mean, did you, did you have something going on that made you more susceptible to that? Obviously you're a young, healthy guy. Yeah. My, uh, no, really I, everything. I got a cardiac MRI. I had a cath. I had all kinds of, uh, a huge workup, um, that nothing came up, nothing at all. Um, any I'm theories, doing, uh, well, electrolyte abnormalities. Yeah. The only thing was my, my potassium was low. Whenever I arrived at the hospital, it was, I think 2.0. And so, and they don't really, not sure why. Um, not sure if that triggered anything, but uh, I am doing genetic testing now. So I sent in a swab and uh, there's a whole list of like 40 genes that they're going to look for. Uh, and that mainly just has implications for my kids, obviously. Um, not really anything for me. There's nothing, nothing to do. I got a, my, my uh, subcutaneous ICD, and um, so I'm back in action. Yeah, I read I read uh, one of your tweets afterwards, and and it said uh, it said something like you know after you after you die for a little while, quote unquote. Uh, one of the first things you do when you wake up is say, "Okay, cool, <laughs> like you made it through <laughs> one more night." I, yeah. I was you know yeah. talk about waking up now and, and how much you know um, uh, sort of happier, happy, and and also grateful you are to do all yeah. the normal things you do in life. I'm sure that's been, has that worn off at all? Or is that, is that going to be an everyday thing from here on out or what? I've, I've, I've had in my mind, I've had milestones like first night, first day morning, waking up in my own bed was, you know, like that. I think that's probably when I tweeted that it's like, Oh, great. Awesome. I'm awake. I get to live another day. I don't really have that as much anymore, but after that it was more like, Oh, cool. I can walk 10 minutes without, you know, cause you'd be surprised how deconditioned you get, you know, laying in an ICU bed, not moving for three days. Uh, and then it was, Oh, cool. I can go to work. I can see a patient in clinic. Uh, I can do a cataract surgery. And so it's been this, it's been this little incremental improvements. You know, I can lift my children again. Um, that, that that's really been driving me. And so it has been a, a lot of improvement. I, I do still have this, you know, sense that, oh man, like, especially when my, I do something with my kids, like, you know, a pre-K or, you know, preschool graduation was one of them or, uh, you know, seeing them do something funny or, or, or cool or, you know, or any kind of sweet tender moments we have as a family. That's when it kind of hits me like, oh, I almost didn't get to experience this. And so I still have those, those feelings, uh, and and that's probably never gonna stop, or at least not for a long time. Yeah, I like that you I like that you've kept a great uh, sense of humor about it the entire time too. As you <laughs> mentioned earlier, your coping mechanism. I went back and scrolled back uh, when it happened, and I wondered if you looked back and just thought it was funny that the last thing that you tweeted about before you quote unquote died for a second was mm. about Michael Jordan's conjunctival melanosis. <laughs> <laughs> Always I was contributing like, to the field. I know. I what if that was my, what if that was it? The last <laughs> thing. <was> it. <laughs> oh man. I guess that's better than nothing, but um, <laughs> yeah, all the, the, the jokes and stuff, you know, it's, it comes from a place of necessity for me. You know, I just, that's, that's just how I, I've viewed this whole thing through that lens of, of, of 
you know, how crazy is this situation? And, and I mean, my, I mean, people say my brain is normal, but I don't think it's ever been normal. Um, because that's kind of, that's kind of how I deal with these types of things. And uh, I'm glad to do it. And I think, I think people enjoy hearing my, my random crazy thoughts about all this stuff and the TikToks. My God, the TikToks. The TikToks. I, I'm going to regret ever getting involved in that, in that app. It might be gone. So who knows? Yeah, I kind of hope so. I was like, uh, please, would you do me a favor? Because I obviously don't have no self-control. Like, I can't, right. I can't stop recording myself doing all these ridiculous right. So what, I mean, I know this is kind of a big question, but the big questions in life, um, I think a lot of times we go around with faith or we go around not knowing or feeling pretty confident that there are no answers. Have any of the big questions in your mind changed through all this? I mean, I'm, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. I mean, I, but yeah. any thoughts on, on the metaphysical uh, world that you, you danced between? <laughs> I think maybe if anything, what motivates you? You know, like what, what is it that, what, is, what are the important things that are gonna sustain you? That those, that's the type of thing that, that makes, whenever you have an experience like this, you're like, what am I doing in life right now that's, that's important and what's not so important? And so I, I find myself thinking about that a lot more and realizing that some things, they're not important and, and they don't need to be taking up my time and uh, really having more of a focus on um the things that really matter and that's this this whole experience just really put that into perspective for me no i think that's i think that's fantastic i mean covid i think in general and, and not to mention you were in icu i know i've got i've been tested several times i, I imagine you have been <laughs> um it's like you know, tickling your brain that's uh, very I've, I've unpleasant been tested, you know three yeah. times. I, yeah. I call it a, a brain biopsy but um you know, I think we all are going to come out of this with new perspectives about, you know, I've got this, I've got this mug sitting on my desk that says I survived another meeting that should have been an email. And like what I <laughs> right. couldn't get to like have a meeting with real people, it, you know, I mean, we're kind of getting back a little bit, but who knows for how long. I mean, we're all going to come out of this with lessons that we have learned about the important mm. things in life. The, the little things that bothered us before that maybe we should just not worry about. And, and like you said, I mean, I think you said it perfectly, just staying focused on the things that are important in our lives um, and letting the other things that are just dragging us down or, sh you know, shouldn't be a part of our life anyway, just letting those things go. Um, I think that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful, maybe place to, to stop. Any, any final thoughts, uh, Blake or, or Dr. G on this, on this topic? Yeah, I guess my final thought would be, um, I just think it's great how you've used humor, you know, throughout this entire thing. And I think that a lot of people relate to that. I think that you have a huge audience um, that has loved, uh, you know, watching the whole journey. I think there's been some positive things in terms of charity and donations that have happened um, after it as well. If, if someone listening mm -hmm. to this doesn't know what I'm talking about, you know, maybe Dr. G can kind of mention that real quick before we leave. Yeah, that's one of those things that's, that's you know, one of those important things that um, uh, I've been able to try to focus on. And that's the um, charity uh, First Descents, which is a, 
a charity that uh, it provides relief and outdoor adventure experiences for young adults who have been affected by cancer. So, uh, which obviously is, is I'm included in that group as I've taken part of and uh, a lot of their programs and um, it's really made a big difference in being able to connect young adults who have experienced cancer or have cancer or, or used to have cancer because it's a, it can be a kind of an isolating experience as a young adult to have that. And so First Ascents is uh, really provides that network uh, and so I've been really fortunate and um, thankful to all my followers and all the organizations and academic departments. And because I, I, I donate all my speaking fees to, um, to First Ascents. And so um, I really appreciate all the support from everybody who follows me and um, has donated. It's, it really means a lot to me. It keeps me going. And where can we find uh, First Ascents online? Is it firstascents.com or? Uh, firstascents.org. And you can find the donation link on my Twitter account as well. And you can find the website there and, and kind of look around at it and check it out. It's really cool. You can ad advocate it for uh, your patients. If you see patients, young adults who have had cancer and um, yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool organization. I love it. Well, Dr. G, Dr. Glockenflecken, uh, this has been just a real treat. I've wanted to connect with you for a while, uh, even before this. Um, I thought with this event happening, uh, I appreciate your willingness to come on and be so vulnerable and open about you know, your life experience. Um, I think it's a lesson that when we do tell our story, um, it actually has a way of connecting us in, in different ways. And we learn from each other much more when we um, really sit down and have a good conversation and listen. So um, thank you so much for coming yeah. on and sharing. And uh, I look forward to seeing you IRL uh, in the near future. Maybe Arvo. You want to go to Arvo? I've heard yeah. Arvo is great. So uh, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll make it a day for Arvo. <laughs> Um, Blake, any final thoughts? Kick us off here. That's it. That's it. So much okay. fun. Thank you everybody for listening to yeah. another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thank you to Dr. Glockenflecken for joining this episode of Off the Grid. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time. Support for Ophthalmology Off the Grid comes from Diametrix, supplying surgeons with innovative products like the X1 Iris Speculum. Its unique ability to simultaneously capture both iris and capsule makes this device a game changer, providing superior stabilization of the pupil, capsule, and anterior chamber. Visit diametrix.com, that's D-I-A-M-A-T-R-I-X.com to learn more or request a sample.